This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. I can't help but sunnier now, but this afternoon in Chicago. I'm stoked to be here. I love Chicago. I love coming to conferences in Chicago. I was just here for Labor Notes a couple months ago. That will, I feel like some of y'all might have been here too. Uh, yeah, this is cool. I'm very excited to talk to you guys about the book I wrote and kind of why I wrote it, how I wrote it, and who I am. Because, you know, a crowd like this, I don't think I stick out quite as much. But I've been doing a lot of book events and conferences and uh, a lot of places where people wore blazers. And <laughs> I still haven't really figured out how that works. I'm trying. I'm wearing sleeves today. So, <laughs> you know, yesterday I was in Wheeling, West Virginia, at, which is a really cool labor town, but a lot of great labor history. It's where Walter Ruther was born. We got to go say what's up to him at his statue and had a little birthday party for him. Very cute. And it was a labor history symposium with me and three other brilliant, well, three brilliant scholars and academics and authors who've written really important contributions to labor history in this country. And then there's me. And one thing that kind of threw me, that happens sort of frequently, at least to me when I'm in those kinds of gatherings, is that a bunch of the folks there would kept coming up to me and saying, oh, it's so wonderful seeing someone so young being so interested in labor history. And like, I appreciate it, it's very sweet, but I'm like daily retinol, intense skincare routine, years old. Like, <laughs> like I, if I had made different decisions, I feel like I could have a kid organizing a Starbucks right now. <laughs> so, which, and it, but that's something that I think about because I think, you know, the idea of labor history isn't necessarily something that has always been as accessible as it should be to everybody, to younger people, to marginalized people, to people who don't end up, you know, actively seeking out history courses or graduate degrees or end up in that world where there's a lot more access to those materials and that research. And God bless all the people who have done that research and archived these stories and and preserved them for the working class because without them we wouldn't know what the hell happened. But with this book I wanted to write something that made labor history accessible and show how diverse it really has always been in this country. I wanted to write something that was inclusive, and radical and fun to read because <laughs> I've read a lot of labor history books and I appreciate them all. But some of them I read when I'm, you know, trying to feel fired up, but some of them I read when I can't sleep. <laughs> and I, I didn't want mine to be that kind of labor book. I wrote this book, and the way I structured it, the idea was like I wrote this book so people could read it on their lunch break or on the bus or when they had a couple minutes and they maybe needed a little pick me up or or feeling beat down by the boss and wanted to see, okay, I feel like I can't do anything 
maybe, maybe you know, has anyone ever pulled this off? Has anyone like me ever been able to do this before? And the goal of the book was to show pretty much everybody, yeah, you can. You have. People exactly like you, no matter what your identity is, have done incredible shit and are going to continue to do incredible shit. Like, because you have to do the incredible shit, right? Because the people who are marginalized have to work so much harder. You know, this book, uh, my goal with writing this book was also to write something, <laughs> well, initially the goal is to write something that you could fit in your back pocket, to take, yeah, to take to a protest or picket line. And then I was left to my own devices for a year, and they ended up looking like that. So it's more of a backpack situation. <laughs> or, you know, buy a couple to throw at a cop, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a free country, so they tell me. <laughs> but yeah, like one of the point of writing this book was to shine a proper spotlight on all of the, the folks, the workers and organizers and leaders and revolutionaries who have sacrificed everything and struggled so much to bring us to where we are now and have laid out crucial blueprints for the fight ahead. Though, but, you know, who have kind of been left out of the mainstream idea of what labor history is, what the working class is, what a union worker is, what a union member is. And, you know, I, I've had a couple of questions at these book events, like, well, we know the, the working class is mostly, you know, the, the, the white guys and the Rust Belt factory workers. I'm like, do we? Because that's not really the case. Like, yeah, they're out there. Like, I was raised by the white guy in a hard hat who has terrible opinions and a lot of guns. And uh, they're, and I mean, at least, I mean, I'm, I don't mind the latter part, but the that, that's that's definitely part of the working class of this country, but it's never been the whole story, no matter what the media or politicians like to say during election cycles. The working class has always been incredibly diverse. It's always been multiracial, multigender, multi-everything. And I got to write about a lot of folks and events and campaigns that illustrate that in this book. And I also have a lot of notes up here because I'm not used to talking for so long, so bear with me. Also, I, I tend to ramble. So, from the mill girls of Lowell and the washerwomen of Jackson, from the multiracial coal miners of Appalachia and the queer steel workers in the Midwest, from Nagi Daifula and Larry Itliang to Emma Tanayuka, Maria Key, from Dorothy Bolden and Baird Rustin to Chris Smalls and Jennifer Bates, from the North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union to Strippers United. These are the people I'm most interested in learning about, reading about, and writing about. You know, labor history should be inclusive, diverse, accessible, messy, and human, just like the people that make it move. And I just always thought that all these folks who don't necessarily end up having days named after them or in the mainstream history books or getting, you know, the, the, the Hulu prestige treatment, they deserve, to, they deserve some shine too. So, all right. I should probably back up a little bit because I realize probably not everyone knows who I am or why there's like this tattooed Amazon trying to talk to you about labor <laughs> history up here. And if you're not on Twitter, you're a stronger person than me. <laughs> but, but, hi, I'm Kim. As Mandy said, I'm a third generation union member. I'm a freelance journalist. I'm an author, which is still kind of wild to think about. And, um, I'm really proud of my union roots because I got to grow up in a union household in a blue-collar union family in a really rural part of the country. And 
not everyone can say that. You, you, you learn a few things growing up like that. You know, my dad and my uncles are all operating engineers. My granddad was a steel worker. My grandma was a teacher. And my other grandma and my mom didn't have union jobs. And they had to work themselves half to death to help put food on the table. They didn't have the protections or benefits that a union job uh, brings to somebody. So growing up, the union was always in the background. You know, It wasn't something I really thought about. It was just something that came up if my dad had to go on strike or if he was like pissed off about an especially boring union meeting. <laughs> or like I was yelling about somebody being a crook. I mean, I am from New Jersey. He's in building trades, so it's it's complicated. <laughs> but yeah, I just knew that the grass was green, the sky was blue, and the union had our backs. It wasn't really until I was in my early, well, actually late teens, uh, and my mom collapsed at work that one day that I fully realized just how much of a difference that a union can make for a working class family. So she had a brain aneurysm. When I was 17, and she spent a year in the hospital. It was it sucks. And uh, by the time she did come home, her medical bills were up to about a quarter of a million dollars, and we would have been absolutely ruined without the health insurance that we got from my dad's union. Like that saved our asses, and it saved her life. You can't really just walk off a brain injury. Um, so it was really hard, and it it still is. But we all survived. And I grew up, but I moved out of the woods, and I decided I was going to devote my life to heavy metal. And, which, I mean, I, I haven't really backed down on that. I just kind of took a detour. <laughs> but I spent most of, most of my life as a, most of my life up till like seven years ago, working as a music journalist and a promoter. I worked at labels, I put on festivals, and I was a, a roadie and a merch person for a whole lot of bands, including a lot of them in Chicago. Uh, it is not lost on me that we're only a few blocks from Reggie's where I have left quite a few of my brain cells. <laughs> so, so even though I, I had that kind of union, like pro-union stuff in the back of my head, and I was a big history nerd and read about a lot of 19th and 20th century history in my free time, and of course I came across, you know, the Lucy Parsons and the Goldmans, and was like, oh, cool. I didn't make the connection. That was something that was for me. I didn't think they made unions for people like me. I mean, there wasn't exactly a metalhead local 666 that was going to come around and like, come to a Yakuza show with union cards. Um, but it was really, and, and I was just like, okay, well, that's just how things are. But then I got a job at Vice as their heavy metal editor, which was a job you could have in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I could. I think that I just kind of made it because they were afraid to tell me right about anything else. <laughs> But I had this job advice. It was my first like media New York job, and it was immediately clear like, oh no, this is this is like cool, but I'm not getting paid very much, and everyone's being real creepy and treating everyone terribly. There's no transparency. Well, I guess this is what a job is. But then a couple coworkers pulled me aside one day and they're like, hey, we're thinking about unionizing. What do you think about that? I was like, oh, thank God. Like, yes. <laughs> How can I get involved? What can I do? And it turned out that there was a lot for me to do. I ended up going to every meeting and committee and bargaining session and got a little bit of a reputation for being kind of a pit bull in those sessions because I don't respect rich hipsters. And I worked <laughs> advice. So, <laughs> so that, well, that was an asset at that very specific point in time. But <laughs> we, ended up writing, we ended up joining the Rise of America East. 
and then my third term as a council person there. So I've kind of gotten to see some of the inner workings in the union council too, which I don't necessarily recommend. Um, but you know, uh, I've been able to, to help push through some things to help the workers in our union. I'm really proud of that. But it was really the bargaining and fighting for that union contract and organizing my coworkers on the job that kind of made everything shift. I went from spending all my free time going to metal shows and bars to spending all my time going to union meetings, also at bars. And I told somebody, when I was thinking about it the other day, I told someone that Labor became my favorite band. It was just that idea, like that passion and that desire to learn more and more and more and get more and more involved. I really, any music fan can relate to that. And much like being a metal nerd, there is always something to learn. There's always a new acronym, uh, a new person in history to get mad at, or somebody who did something awesome that you come across in like the deepest possible rabbit hole on Google, which is where I found a lot of my favorite people in this book. Um, but that's probably enough about me. We're here now. I, I look like this, and somehow I was allowed to write a book that looks like this. And it's, <laughs> I specifically had to tell them, please don't make the cover red, white, and blue. Like, please <laughs> let, me, let me have this. <laughs> so that's why I have this giant goth labor book. And, you know, one thing, we're at this moment, too, where labor is, I mean, we're always kind of getting screwed. But it just it feels like things are, are shifting a little bit. There's a lot of interest, a lot of energy that we're seeing around the movement that wasn't necessarily there a few years ago. We're talking about younger folks. I mean, Starbucks and Amazon are like the big marquee names we're seeing. They're doing incredible things. But there's also like 15,000 nurses in Minnesota about to go on strike. There are dancers in the North Hollywood Strip Club who are trying to get their union recognized right now. There are a thousand coal miners on strike in Alabama. It's been 18 months. And <laughs> I've been talking about that one for a while. That one's been, been tough to get people to pay attention to. I have theories about that, but that's another talk. But yeah, we're in this moment. 71% of people polled in this country approve of unions. We have this nominally pro-union administration, making things a little bit easier. We're in this moment where it's a lot easier to feel hopeful that we can actually pull off some of the things we've been trying to pull off. And one of the things we need to always remember about this movement is that there's no one answer for every problem. Every worker is unique, and the struggle is multifaceted. To some people, the early days of labor might seem like a dusty historical throwback that isn't necessarily relevant right now. But they would be wrong. And I'm not just saying that because I have a vested interest in them, you know, trying to get people to care about labor history. You know, the workers that were fighting, that are fighting for better wages and safe working conditions and stability and a little bit of dignity, the people doing that right now, the same kind of people were doing that 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. You know, there's still millions of people in this country who are being disrespected, abused, mistreated, just fucking worked to death. And that's why telling their stories is so important. You know, one of the things that appeals to me so much about labor history and what made me write this big-ass book about it is the sense of movement that one gets from looking back and seeing how far we've come and finding inspiration to push us further in the direction that we know we need to be going. You know, there are a few major themes in this book, and I'll get to, I'll get to all of them in a minute, but there's one I want to start out by emphasizing. And it's pretty simple. It's hope. 
know, throughout the history of working people in this country, hope has been manifested in endless ways. For a lot of people, it's been holding tight to the certainty that things would get better so long as we continue to fight. It's keeping the faith, refusing to be intimidated by the boss, and not letting the bastards get down. It, every person I write about in Fight Like Hell and cover my work as a labor journalist has understood the power of hope. It's one of the few things the boss can never take from us, and it's something we hold so much power to build up ourselves. You know, as, as Mariam Kaba says, though, hope is a discipline, and it's also a constant struggle. The world can be so very dark, and we're living in it through a particularly cruel moment for the working class, where so many of us are seeing our rights, our liberties, and our very personhood challenged or stripped away entirely. It's scary and painful, and hopefully radicalizing. Now, as history has shown us time and time again, our rights were not granted to us by benevolent rulers. We took them. And we cannot allow ourselves to be forced back into another century where shit was still fucked up. Now, one thing I always like to emphasize when I'm talking to workers is that there are a lot more of us than there are of them. And creativity and militancy are a virtue. There are a couple other major themes I want that drive the narrative of this book. And I decided I'm going to, instead of just pontificating for Mad Long, I'm going to read you some sections about some of my favorite people that kind of illustrate some of the points I want to make. Uh, when I give these talks, I usually swap in different people given the context. And you'll, if you've read the book, you'll recognize a lot of chapter four in this one. It's definitely the reddest of the, the chapters. But here, let, let me introduce you to some of my pals. Uh, so the first point is that some people have been left out of the American dream, which, duh. You know, I don't think anyone in this room who has studied American history or been paying attention or like lived in America would argue with that. But thankfully, people have been trying to change that, or at least challenge that, for centuries. And one of my favorite people in the book, that I'm going to read a section of the book about him now, he's a man named Ben Fletcher. He's from South Philly. He grew up not that far from where I live now. Uh, there's actually a coalition of groups in Philly who are trying to get a statue erected to him, which is very cool and very needed. But uh, yeah, I'll tell a little bit about Ben Fletcher, who helped organize a strong and effective multiracial union on the South Philly waterfront 51 years before the Civil Rights Act. Born the free son of formerly enslaved parents, Ben Fletcher took pride in his blackness. His parents had moved north following emancipation, and Philadelphia was a logical choice for a destination. The city offered a booming maritime industry, as well as relatively progressive racial politics thanks to the influence of local abolitionist Quaker communities and its status as an important stop on the Underground Railroad. As Professor Peter Cole notes in Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, which you can buy out there, uh, Philadelphia boasted the largest black community in any northern U.S. city at the time of Fletcher's 1890 birth, and had become a multiracial hub for all kinds of migrant workers. Young Ben would have grown up with immigrants from Ireland, Italy, and Eastern Europe, along with his black community. That familiarity and ability to move among worlds would come in handy later as he got involved in organizing at his workplace. Assuming he could convince any of the city's litany of racist employers to hire him at all, Ben Fletcher would have found few who took advantage of his education or skills. Black workers were, were finally able to demand payment for their toil, but those opportunities came almost solely in manual labor and domestic service. 
even nominally liberal Philadelphia, with its proud abolitionist history, remained mired in systemic racism and segregation along racial, ethnic, and gender lines further divided the economic, social, and civic lives of its denizens. Its employer class accepted black employees only grudgingly, assigning them the most difficult, dirty, and dangerous occupations. In Fletcher's case, that meant becoming one of at least a thousand other black men working on Philadelphia's docks. Black workers had labored in the city's maritime industry since its colonial days, loading and unloading the same cargo ships that had traversed the Atlantic Ocean to bring them and their relatives to this, cap to this country as captives, ships that then helped propel the United States rise as a major player in the global economy. Fletcher was also a card-carrying member of both the IWW and the Socialist Party of America, alongside a number of his wobbly comrades, like Big Bill Haywood, Eugene B. Debs, and Hubert Harrison. Harrison, a West Indian immigrant, was known for his writing on socialism and black liberation, as well as his involvement in the 1913 Patterson Silk Strike, and was dubbed the father of Harlem radicalism by labor and civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph. As a fellow black wobbly, Fletcher's involvement with Harrison in both entities spoke volumes about his personal and political commitment to working class liberation. But it, was his, but it was his work with the IWW that would come to define his weighty contributions to American labor in general and to black workers in particular. By 1912, Fletcher had already become a well-respected figure among the thousands of dock workers who kept Philadelphia moving. His co-workers in the docks, a full half of which were black, reflected the racially diverse neighborhood that had raised him. Fletcher spoke directly to their struggle in his speeches at local IWW meetings and in the union's newspaper, Solidarity, drawing direct lines between the subjugation of the black worker, the racist capitalist exploitation that defined their working lives, and the promise of uniting workers along industrial lines. His speeches definitely illustrated the concept of racial capitalism nearly a century before Cedric Robinson defined the term in his 1983 book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. And Fletcher also pulled no punches when addressing racism and discrimination within the labor movement itself. In 1913, during a grueling strike that called out 4,000 workers and paralyzed the docks, both IWW and the AFL-affiliated International Longshoremen's Association headed to Philly to, solicitate the, or to solicit the striking workers to join their respective unions. The Wobblies won out, and Ben Fletcher emerged as a leader of the newly christened Local 8 branch of the IWW's Marine Transport Workers Industrial Union. Local 8 was immediately home to the IWW's largest contingent of black members, which made up a third of the chapter. Fletcher's vision for the advancement of the community through labor action was coming together. Industrial unionism is the abolition movement of the 20th century, he wrote in a letter to the Baltimore Afro-American in 1920. And if sufficient number of workers rally to its standard, complete industrial emancipation will be the heritage of all us workers, and we will become disenthralled from the thraldom of the rich. Local 8 would control Philadelphia's waterfront for the next decade as one of the IWW's strongest and most effective locals. Fletcher himself became a bit of a celebrity, well known up and down the East Coast as a traveling organizer and speaker, and spent time organizing black dock workers in Boston, Baltimore, and Norfolk, Virginia. He traveled to IWW conventions in Chicago, befriending Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and writing approvingly of Matilda Rabinowitz's work on the Little Falls textile strike. His work went swimmingly up until 1917, when the U.S. plunged into World War I. The conflict stirred up a frenetic outpouring of patriotism that spelled doom for political dissidents and labor agitators. 
IWW itself was riven by disagreements over whether the union should come out in opposition to the war, but the union ultimately decided to leave the question up to its individual members. Nonetheless, dark clouds of suspicion were cast on anyone who seemed less than thrilled about sending working-class youth to die in an imperialist war overseas. In Philly, local aid pledged not to strike when the war was on, save for the annual one-day strike honoring the union's anniversary. Hundreds of its members joined the military and bought liberty bonds to fund the war effort. Fletcher himself had a rug on the front lines, and he was among those leader leaders who urged the membership to support the war effort, or at least not to actively oppose it. Yet he was among the 166 wobblies snatched up by the Department of Justice in a massive sweep of September 5, 1917. The nation's entry into World War I had been accompanied by the passage of a port portentous series of bills, the 1917 and 1919 Espionage Acts, the 1918 Sedition Act. Together, they essentially made it illegal to publicly criticize the government, the military, the draft, or the flag itself, and law enforcement took the opportunity to ramp up its long-running war on anti-capitalist, pro-worker organizing. Philly's district, Philly's district attorney made the government's intentions clear when he described the September 1918 raids as having been launched very largely to put the IWW out of business. Its members were slapped with a, with a litany of draconian charges, like conspiring to strike, interfering with the draft, mail fraud, and of course, violating the broadly written Espionage Act. The trial drug dragged down for four months, and its result, its result was devastating. Despite local aid's peaceful reputation and support for the war, as well as Fletcher's own role in orchestrating that support, the 27-year-old was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison and fined 30 grand, which is roughly $541,000 in 2021 currency. As the sentencing was read, Fletcher quipped Riley to his friend and fellow defendant, Big Bill Haywood, the judge has been using ungrammatical language. His sentences are much too long. He was a funny guy. Gallows humor aside, the situation was dire. Fletcher and 93 other Wobblies were shipped off on a special convict train to the U.S. Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Nicknamed Hell's 40 Acres, Leavenworth has long held a, a fearsome reputation in the popular imagination as a storehouse for the worst of the worst. And during Fletcher's time there, he and his fellow Wobblies were subjected to all manner of abuse, neglect, and torture amid the prison's squalid conditions. The FBI surveilled all the political prisoners and monitored Fletcher's correspondence for Negro agitation, though Ben's frequent contributions to the messenger during this time indicate those efforts were unsuccessful. While he and the others were stuck in living hell in Kansas, their IWW comrades outside raised money and launched appeals for their release. With the end of World War I, the public skepticism towards the hundreds of wartime arrests led to a flood of releases between 1920 and 1921, among them Fletcher, who immediately dove right back into his work with local aid. Fletcher remained active until 1933, when a serious stroke sent his health into a sharp decline. That same year, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt finally pardoned him and many of his fellow Wobblies, who had been sent to prison more than a decade earlier. Fletcher died in 1949, having devoted his, cause to, his life to the cause of the multiracial working class, and laid the groundwork for the next decade of struggle. As he wrote in The Messenger in 1923, it is to be hoped that in the near future, all labor will be united for one common cause. It is an undeniable fact that all labor has something in common, a desire for a higher standard of living. This can only be attained through interracial solidarity in the mixed union.
what a great guy. You know, you should. Uh, Peter Cole's book is out there in the the book, John. You should definitely pick it up. Um, so that's Ben Fletcher, and I love telling people about him because he was kind of like uh, like a Philly Lucy Parsons. That's a very broad comparison, but he was this very very famous like like black speaker and organizer and labor figure, and yet he's kind of been shoved to the side in history. Like, wobbly history doesn't get that much attention anyway, because I don't know why. There's probably reasons, but as a, as a wobbly, I'm, I'm just offended by it generally. But <laughs> they, they just don't want people to know that we can have one big union. But yeah, I like highlighting him specifically because he was so ahead of his time and such an important figure, and more people should know about him. That's how I feel about a lot of people in this book, but also having a connection to the city where I live. and it, It's just kind of cool to find out someone like that grew up a few blocks away from where I live. And so the second major theme of Fight Like Hell is another very simple one. Everyone deserves to be treated fairly. I mentioned before that uh, I'm pulling this, I pulled Ben and this next person from chapter four which focuses predominantly on IWW-related folks. And you know, while they're radicals scattered throughout the entire book and throughout the entire history of labor in this country, like it has always been red and black in the labor movement, whether or not the Democrats like to admit that sort of thing. Um, let me tell you about my girl, Marie Key. I actually got to write a longer piece of her about the nation after I turned in the manuscript. But um, I was really excited to be able to write about her because she, she's the kind of person that I think it's important to read about right now, especially. You know, she was, <laughs> she, she was rad. I, I get very just like, I turn into like a bro about some of the people I'm most excited about. She was rad. Um, and she, she was a class trader, which we love to see, having grown up comfortably in New England, and then she chose to devote her life to the poor and working class, even going to prison for her principles. She was a lesbian, an abortionist, an anarchist, a labor activist, an anti-war protester, and at one point, a political prisoner. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> um, and if you want to learn more about her, Michael Helquist wrote a really great biography called Maria Key, Radical Politics and Outlaw Passions that you should check out. But for now, I'm going to read from my section about her to give you a little intro to Portland's Queen of the Bolsheviks and the people she fought alongside. Ben Fletcher was not the only Wobbly to suffer a long prison stint as, a pun as punishment for service in the class war. Oregon's Dr. Maria Aki was a former teen textile worker who became a highly respected doctor, known for assisting the poor and unemployed, administering abortions to those who needed them, and throwing herself wholeheartedly into the struggle for women's suffrage. Aki was one of the Pacific Northwest's most prominent lesbians, and held true to her principles even when it seemed like the entire world or at least the entirety of the U.S. government, was against her. One of her first appearances in the Oregonian newspaper concerned her publicly horsewhipping a boss who withheld wages from one of her romantic partners. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and that was only the beginning of a, of a long public reign that earned her the moniker Portland's Queen of the Bolsheviks. I feel that'd be a very contested title in Portland now. <laughs> a lot of contenders. The key took special care to ensure that the most economically disadvantaged women would be able to access her services, pioneering a sliding scale model in which rich patients were charged more to subsidize the cost of treating poorer ones. As a lifelong outsider, she was unbothered by the social stigma and potential legal implications surrounding her abortion work. 
Her friend Lou Levy, Lou Levy once explained, she did most of it for nothing because working class women needed it. If they could, they paid. If not, not. Her abortion were also placed a key at odds with many of her cohort in the progressive movement, and she gradually found herself drifting into more radical waters. When women workers at a fruit cannery on Portland's east side walked out one day, she was called to one of the workers' homes to render medical attention. It was the height of cherry season, in which women were expected to work for five to eight cents an hour in filthy conditions. When 200 of them walked out in protest, the ensuing battle became one of the Pacific Northwest's first strikes led by women workers. As a key passed by the picket line and wrote en route to a house call, she recognized several of her former patients among the strikers. When they invited her to join, she hopped up on a barrel and began to exhort the workers still inside the plant to come out and join the strike. The initial protests turned into a full-fledged labor battle, and Marie's commanding, or Aki's commanding presence became a fixture on the increasingly volatile picket lines. Local police grew more emboldened as it went on, charging the strikers on horseback as the women faced off against them in the streets. Aki herself got wrapped up in the violence. <laughs> she was once nabbed for stabbing a policeman with a steel hat pin. <laughs> I mean, my girl. <laughs> and found herself radicalized by the walls the cherry pickers found themselves pushed up against. The final vestiges of her, of her faith in liberal government reform fell away, and she was reborn a revolutionary. I started in, the, in this fight a socialist, but I am now an anarchist, she proclaimed. I'm going to speak where and when I wish. No man will stop me. That commitment to free speech was a defining aspect of the IWW's activism in the 20th century. Unlike modern interpretations that have been twisted by subsequent generations of bad, bad faith right-wing reactionaries, the Wobblies' definition of free speech was simple and served as a defining plank in their organizing strategy. They fought for the basic right to speak in public, to stand on their soapboxes and spread their message of industrial unionism, anti-capitalism, and the one big union to whoever wished union. Got to turn ringer off, my guy. Under the First Amendment, this should have been a moot point, but as these free speech fights exemplify, there was and still is a yawning gap between theory and practice when it comes down to who is actually allowed to exercise that right. Before the advent of television and radio, soapboxing, which is setting up a literal box to stand on in order to speak to a crowd, uh, was a popular means of mass communication used by politicians, actors, preachers, and activists alike. Major free speech fights broke out in Spokane, Washington, Missoula, Montana, Kansas City, Missouri, Sioux City, Iowa, and San Diego, California, as well as in Portland, Oregon, where the IWW caught wind of the cannery strike and showed up with soapboxes at the ready. It was here that Maria Keys left his political awakening, her memories of a working-class childhood, and the scars of systemic inequality she saw etched into her patients' fully or into her patients' bodies each day, fully crystallized. She threw her lot in with the Wobblies, and while the cannery strike failed, the movement writ large gained a giant. When the U.S. entered World War I, Aki's fiercely anti-war stance set her apart from her peers in Portland, but as per usual, she rejected the calls to moderate her message in the face of public disapproval. A pro-war parade saw Aki join uninvited, incendiary banner in tow. Prepare to die, working men. J.P., Morgan, and co. want preparedness for profit. These bold actions earned a key a target on her back, one that would ultimately land her in the same hot water that had burned Ben Fletcher. 
On May 16, 1918, President Wilson signed an amendment to the 1917 Espionage Act aimed at further curtailing dissent against the war. The silencing summer that follows saw a key snatched up by police on June 30, 1918. The same day, fellow Wobbly and socialist labor leader Eugene V. Debs was taken in for sedition. The state devoted considerable resources to secure convic a conviction for a key. <laughs> Her trial saw the worst of the area's homophobia and Red Scare hysteria. Aki was determined to fight back on behalf of free speech, herself, and the right to love, to live and love as one prefers. She launched a lengthy appeal that freed her to continue her work and set the stage for her last hurrah, an armed confrontation between the IWW-backed striking shingle factory workers and vigilantes hired by factory owners in Everett, Washington, that left five Wobblies dead and saw Aki rush to the victim's aid. Less than a year later, with her appeal dead in the water, a key became a year of incarceration in October 1920. Though she defiantly told her supporters, I'm going to prison smiling, the experience left her profoundly shaken. A key continued to advocate for free speech and workers' rights throughout her life, even if at a lower volume than before. Her last recorded appearance as a labor agitator came in 1934, when a 62-year-old key was spotted on the picket line of a multi-union Portland maritime strike. She said her hellos and headed down to the nearby Union Hall to donate $250, more than five grand in 2021 currency to the cause. The workers won the 1934 West Coast waterfront strike, and they remembered her dedication years later. In 1952, after they heard the news of that 80-year-old Marie Key's death from renal disease, the Dock Workers Union passed a resolution in honor of their old friend. They declared Key to have been a powerful fighter for the working class who had braved personal danger and hardships to preserve peace, freedom of speech, and the right of labor to organize. A fitting epitaph for a remarkable woman. Don't you just love her? Yeah. <laughs> More people should know about her, right? Like, like a queer anarchist abortionist icon. We need more of those now, especially. Um, what time is it? Okay, I'll talk faster. Um, that brings us to the last lesson, the last section I'm going to read for you. The last lesson being that solidarity is our greatest weapon. And I believe it was my guy, Big Bill Haywood, who once said, if the workers are organized, all they have to do is put their hands in their pockets and they have got the capitalist class whipped. And we've seen that happen time and time again through strike after strike. We don't win them all, but we win enough to keep, I mean, to keep us wanting to use strikes as a tactic. <laughs> of course, strikes are only one of the tools in the working class toolbox, but they can be awfully effective when wielded wisely. And as history has shown us, uh, strikes are often at their strongest when they're built on multiracial, multigender, diverse coalitions of workers who know that giving in to artificial divisions is just doing the boss's work for them and know how powerful we are when we stand together. So, speaking of staying together, the last group I want to tell you about is a union that you probably haven't heard much about, even though they made a big splash during the time they were most active and have a lot of lessons for today's labor movement, including what can happen when leftists take over conservative organizations. Like a lot of the more openly left-leaning or communist-led unions during the Red Scare eras, the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union basically got red-baited into, into submission and now no longer exists. But at a moment when our queer and trans comrades are under escalating attacks 
and racism and capitalism continue to strangle the working class. We have a lot to learn from this queer, multiracial, leftist union who took no red baiting, no race baiting, and no queen baiting as its motto. The San Francisco-based Marine Cooks and Stewards Union was formed in 1901 to represent the workers who served the well-heeled guests aboard the era's hulking luxury liners and merchant ships. It was a grueling occupation characterized by low wages, poor sanitation, spoiled food, entitled passengers, and working conditions that gave rise to the ship's nickname, Floating Tenements. Many of the cooks and stewards were black or Asian. Following the opening of Angel Island as an immigration hub, an influx of Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino immigrants joined San Francisco's maritime workforce and were met with racism and naked hostility from entrenched labor organizations, MCS included. So until the 1930s, the MCS accepted only white men as members. In 1921, though, the Colored Marine Employees Benefit Association of the Pacific, CMBA, was formed to represent those workers that MCS rejected, and the two unions engaged in bitter competition over jobs and control of the waterfront. It would take the momentous impact of the Great Waterfront Strike of 1934, shout out to Marie, to illustrate how crucial it was for the labor movement to unite and organize across racial lines. As more leftists rose to power in the organization, the MCS embarked on an ambitious project to integrate its membership. The, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, was formed that same year by UMWA leader John L. Lewis, with a goal to compel the AFL to organize along industrial lines. The two groups passed diverged, con the two groups passed diverged considerably over the decades, especially as the Red Scare heated up. But in 1935, at least, the CIO represented a promising new vision of progress. Leftists were having a moment, and communists in particular became deeply entwined with the more radical sectors of the movement. As Rebels Caton, a black communist MCS leader, later recalled, union leadership was reactionary, but the rank and file fought to make it a democratic union, one in which discrimination did not exist. And in MCS's case, that the struggle for a united union explicitly included LGBTQIA workers, self-identified queens who composed a significant portion of the workforce at every level. Queer workers, from sailors to longshoremen to stewards, were drawn to the waterfront by an atmosphere of sexual freedom that was absent on land. And seafaring culture allowed space for intimate contact between men at sea, chipping away at the sexual binary that dominated on land. The MCS secured workplace protections for LGBTQIA workers decades before the gay liberation movement went mainstream, or enshrined those rights in union contracts. As Alan Barabay, a pioneering social historian on the lives of working class lesbians and gay men who had extensively researched the MCS prior to his death in 2008, told New Socialist magazine in 1988, you couldn't be fired for anything except not doing your job. You had to violate something in the contract. So being gay was not a reason for being fired. The MCS emerged as a beacon of interracial solidarity and a haven for LGBTQIA workers who would occasionally raise money for union benefits by putting on drag shows and musicals. The playful, campy side of gay culture was also expressed in the union's newspaper, the MCS Voice, which mixed radical militancy and Marxist analysis with images of queer interracial solidarity. Manuel Cabral, a ship's janitor known as the Honolulu Queen, decorated the MCS Union Hall with flowers and hung up lace curtains. When the ILWU and other maritime workers gathered each year on remembrance of Bloody Thursday, Cabral arranged the flowers at the sidewalk memorial. 
The new union adopted the slogan, is anti-union to red bait, race bait, or queen bait. And during World War II, provided a useful outlet for queer workers who wished to participate in war effort, but were barred from military service due to their sexuality. The MCS continued to practice what it preached for the rest of its existence. Even as the rising fear of communist influence on the movement began to cause problems for its members. By 1949, the union's overwhelmingly white leadership had realized it did not accurately reflect its predominantly black and Asian membership. Within a year, that old guard stepped down to make room for a more diverse set of new leaders. Imagine. <laughs> it's, it's membership. Its membership remained overwhelmingly male, but the union went to bat for other genders as well. In 1950, when the Madison Navigation Company refused to allow Luella Lawhorn, a black woman, to work on its luxury liner Lurleen to Hawaii, all 311 stewards on board walked off in protest. The union held firm and saw to it that Lawhorn became the first ever black stewardess on a U.S. passenger ship in the Pacific. Unfortunately, after World War II, MCS got caught up in the same web of fear-mongering and repression that kneecapped so many other more radically inclusive and politically leftist unions <laughs> during the Red Scare, especially those affiliated with the CIO, which refused to force its members to take an anti-communism pledge. Shortly thereafter, in the 1950s, the union was kicked out of the CIO alongside the IAWU and other allegedly communist-dominated unions, and was absorbed into the more conservative Seafarers International Union. The now-defunct organization's multiracial, queer leftist history would have been lost without the efforts of chroniclers like Vera Bay. What many of you younger people are trying to do today as queers, what you call inclusion and diversity, we already did it 50 years ago in the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union. Stephen Mickey Blair, a gay white MCS member who served as the MCS vice president, told him in the 1990s. Blair's partner, Frank McCormick, was a vice president of the California CIO, and they were both involved in the 1934 waterfront strike. We did it in the labor movement as working class queens with left wing politics, and that's why the government crushed us. And that's why you don't know anything about us today. Our history has been totally erased. So Frank McCormick wasn't wrong. The history is not out there in the way that it should be. And it took me a while to hunt it down to stick it in the book. Like if I hadn't come across Alan Barabay and a couple other books that weren't even labor books, they just happened to mention this union in passing, I probably wouldn't have come across it either. And I'm like a giant labor nerd who was actually looking for these kinds of stories. But I think they're one thing, I, the reason I picked those three examples are because they all kind of interlap in a way, right? Whether it was World War One repression or being a big old commie or <laughs> being down with multiracial, multigender, working class solidarity, or even specific moments like that 1934 waterfront strike. I think it just shows that even though these people and these groups were so different, they're in different places, they had different identities, they were all in that same struggle together, whether or not they knew it at that time. And I think that's some, we're living through that kind of moment right now. You know, one, actually now, okay. One little, last little thought that I just like to mention when I talk about this book is when we, when we read history, we look back at history, or even current movements, I think there's sometimes an impulse to silo off specific movements of specific causes, like black liberation here, queer liberation here, labor stuff, women's rights. Like, it's all these different pieces. But 
one thing that, I, that became very clear when I was writing this book, and hopefully it will become clear from reading it and really just paying attention to how things are working now and other panels at this conference, is that the same people were doing all the same things. Like these struggles are all interconnected, especially when it comes to labor, when it comes to diverse and marginalized workers within labor for taking part in other struggles. It's because labor is almost universal. Not everyone, but most people have a job or have had a job or will have a job. They probably fucking hate their job. <laughs> <laughs> or at least have experienced oppression or marginalization or just general bullshit on the job. And so workers have been kind of the backbone of all these other movements because we've, I mean, you could be out here leading a march or leading a meeting or chronicling an important social movement, but then you probably still have to go get up for work on Monday and do your job too. So it, it was exciting for me to see all these intersections. There's a lot of other intersections like that in the book, and we can talk about more of them if you want. But um, I've been babbling for a little while. I know that people like to talk at this convention. So I'll be, <laughs> I've seen some panels. <laughs> Don't be family though. I'm not a theory guy. <laughs> I'm really good at talking to coal miners, but don't ask me about like I can't even use a fancy word. <laughs> but okay, I'll leave you the last little thing I'll say. Now that you've met a couple of my friends, um, I'll leave you with a couple words to chew on. As you all know very well, this work is never done, but victory is always possible. We've triumphed before, and we will do it again. We've lost a lot of battles too, but even those losses have left important lessons for the generation of workers that came after. And we have to continue building on the legacies of those who came before us. I believe that the cause of labor is the hope of the world. And if we fight like hell for it together, the world truly is ours to win. So thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.